0: My intent is to spend uh, the main weeks, probably a couple few months, uh, two or three months, studying through John's first letter. But rather than starting with chapter 1, verse 1, what I'd like us to do first is look together at John's summary of the letter when he tells us why he's doing it. Now, why would I do that? Why not start at 1-1? Well, the reason is this. The New Testament writers wrote the epistles expecting someone to stand up in front of the church and read the whole thing to them. Now imagine what it was like for the Romans when they got Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and they said, we have a uh, letter here from Paul, and be, be for anyone who needs to use the restroom do it, and then come back in and join us because this is going to take a while. Uh, And, of course, afterward, people would be going, that's the most magnificent thing I've ever heard. What in the world did he say? And then they would have to teach through it. So John's is a short letter. We could easily read through it. Many of I'm sure that most of you have probably read it, studied it, maybe taught it. But I would like us this morning just to look at the first five verses of chapter five and verse 13 of chapter five, where once again, as he did in his gospel, John tells us, why he wrote the letter. So would you look with me at 1 John chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, help me to stay out of the way of what you want through your Spirit to say to your people, give us listening ears, and enable me, I pray, to speak with clarity and appropriate affect this tremendous text that shows us what it means to be born again, fully alive, anew, with the Spirit your Spirit, living in and through us. And so we wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about vital signs, vital signs of the individual Christian, which obviously then means because we're connected together in the church as the body of Christ, a little picture in every local church of Christ's body, these vital signs should also mark us. Now, why why am I calling them vital signs? My older brother is a now retired professor of surgery who spent uh, the whole first half of his life up in Cambridge and Boston, and uh, at Massachusetts General Hospital brought me wonderful stories that weren't to be known publicly. My very favorite is from the Phillips House. The Phillips House still exists today. It is called a ward of Massachusetts General Hospital, but it's actually a very expensive hotel uh, all Everything is mahogany, uh, antique furniture, silver service on the sideboards, and your insurance does not cover staying at the Phillips house. So you feel as though you're in a five-star hotel with uh, additional rooms and a designated chef and all the rest. The downside of staying in the Phillips house is that nurses who have burned out on the wards uh, make their last call at the Phillips house doing private duty nursing and some of them are in worse shape than the patients of the Phillips house. And so my story, my brother told me that one of his, uh, one of his uh, surgical partners was doing rounds with his students, walked into one of the rooms of the Phillips house, just took one look and could see that his patient had been dead for quite some time. And the nurse sitting next to him was crocheting away happily and <laughs> greeted him cheerfully. And so he, he looked for a moment looked at her, looked at the patient, picked up the chart, and she had telegraphed the vital signs all the way across, uh, right up until about 10 minutes before he'd walked in the room. And so he walked over, pulled down the sheet, kind of lifted the guy's arm, handed it to the nurse, and she gave a little cry and said, oh, doctor, I am so sorry, but he had not slept for the last few nights, and I thought finally he was sleeping, and I didn't have the heart to wake him up and take his vital signs. Well, when I first heard it, I thought, I I can't believe it happened. But then I thought about some of the congregations I've preached to. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I know how that nurse felt. I mean, you've had a hard week. You know, you're finally in a comfortable place with friends. You've greeted people. We've been led so beautifully by David and Jonathan in, in music this morning. And now, you know, let's just let's just have somebody say something sweet, you know, to us. And and what I'm going to say I hope will be incredibly sweet. But what John is doing here is giving us the way to take our vital signs, not blood pressure, pulse, and respiration, but the vital signs of whether or not we have been born of God. And so, I want to make them as clear as possible, because this is the theme of his letter, as he said in verse 13, I've written so that you who believe in Jesus may know that you have eternal life. Now, there's a difference between knowing that you have eternal life and presuming that you have eternal life because you did whatever your church told you you needed to do to be sure that you were a Christian. Uh, In the evangelical circles in which I grew up, you were told you just pray a sinner's prayer and don't ever doubt again that you're saved. Uh, The Puritans were wiser. When someone prayed a sinner's prayer with them and then said, Am I now saved? the Puritans would answer, We'll see. (laughs) And that's what John's doing here. He's giving us the, the we'll see. This is how we see. And he's going to wind, blend these three signs all through this book. But I wanted, because here, this is the one place where he brings them all together and sort of braids them together in particularly the first three verses, but on up through verse 5 of chapter 5, I wanted us to see them together because they don't stand alone. They are all of a piece. They are the marks that someone has been born of God. And... They are these, in overview, and then we're going to pull the threads and try to look at each one and see why it is so important that we understand. First one is, it's a matter of the mind. Now remember, those of you that know this wonderful letter, that back toward the beginning, he said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, or I think, ESV says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind, and uh, I I know it the old way, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, not of the Father, but of the world. The world passes away. Now, these vital signs are specifically aimed at those three things, and those come directly from the story of the Garden of Eden, where we see Eve look and go, oh… It's awfully nice looking and I'll bet it would taste good and it would give me knowledge that I don't have. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. So, it's a new way of thinking. It's aimed at the mind. It's a new way of loving. It is aimed at the heart. And then the third, that's really for most of us, I suspect, certainly for me, true confession, uh, it's a matter of the will a new way of living. And let me tell you right at the beginning of my ministry together with you, whenever I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself. So if ever I seem as though I'm really kind of bearing down a little hard, it's because I'm preaching to myself. And you are welcome to listen in because you may be as big a mess as I am, okay? (laughs) So, number one, it's aimed at the mind. It's a new way of thinking. For the Christian, for one who has been born again, it's not simply this acknowledgement that there was a historical figure that Christians believe was the Christ, the Messiah of God, and, and maybe these things be true, and if they are, certainly I want my sins forgiven and want hope of heaven. For the Christian, this confession that Jesus is the Christ is if you know what a seed crystal is in a supersaturated solution you know you've got a supersaturated solution you drop in the seed crystal and everything everything comes around it that's what this is in the mind of someone who has been born again every other truth every other passage of scripture begins to open around this great truth that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. Now, as you know, it means the anointed, and it's the same as in the Hebrew, the word Messiah. So, Messiah, Christ, the same, it means the anointed one. But whenever you read words like this that are so significant in the Scripture, and this supremely so, think of it the way that if if you're on your computer and you're reading a text, and then there's a blue word, or one that's underlined, you know, oh, I've got to click on that, because it's going to open up all this other stuff. That's what you need. When you see significant things like this, you need to go, this is an entry word to what the Bible teaches about the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, he says, if you have been born again, and note, this is not the, these are not the things we do to be born again. He said, the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So it's saying you believe everything that God has taught us in His Word about who Jesus is, that this anointed one is the one who came to save His people. He is the one who is the just and righteous ruler of His people, whom we follow in order to lead a kingdom life. All of these magnificent passages about the anointed of God, we are embracing and it's changing our lives. now. You may say, okay, I've got that moved to point two, but this is, this is why this interests me so much, particularly in evangelical settings where we take this seriously. This is very hard to preach when I'm invited to more liturgical settings into churches we would probably consider theologically liberal because, I mean, it, it's, like try, it's like preaching in Mandarin to a group of Japanese speakers. I mean, it just, nothing computes. But you all know these things, so why am I concerned? This is the reason. In the the gospel lesson where John told us why he'd written the gospel, do you remember? He said, Jesus did many other things, many more signs than I've recorded in this book. I've recorded these, I've recorded enough so that you may believe that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So you say, okay, that's all we need. If I believe that Jesus is the Christ, if I believe in His name, I have life in His name. That's what John said. Here's the problem. If you're a careful reader of the gospel, as soon as he says that, you're gonna remember all the way back to the end of John chapter two. There we read in the final verses of John chapter two, Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover season, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He did. But He did not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in their hearts. And He needed no one to tell Him what was in the heart of a man. And then we have that terrible chapter division where John 3 begins. There should be no new chapter there. You know, the chapter divisions and verses didn't come until the Middle Ages. And the story is that this guy named Stephanus was, you know, riding his horse and doing this. I think his horse stepped on a hole. But for chapter 3, because it should read, now Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He needed no one to reveal to him what was in the heart of a man. Now there was a man of the Jews named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. In other words, let me give you an example of the kind of person who has now believed in him at one level, but not yet savingly brothers and sisters, the demons believe and tremble. Most of us haven't the sense to tremble. I'm preaching to myself. That's James, Jesus' brother, James, who wrote that in his little letter. So it's not enough simply to say, do I believe? Well, that's why he writes his first letter, because he now wants to say, okay, what are the signs? of the difference between the end of John chapter 2 and the promise at the end of John chapter 20. and That's why He's giving us this. And so the first is this deep and, may I say, in the light of Scripture itself touching my cursor to Christ and looking at at the larger Scripture, it is a deeper and more profound call than most of us grew up hearing because most of us here have grown up at peace, in a Christ, not a Christian culture, but a Christianized culture. So, it's cost us nothing without belaboring it too much, and we'll talk about it more in the days ahead. I'll go to the Apostle Paul and uh, just cite two of his examples. We often quote to people who are coming to Christ from Romans 10 where the Apostle Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And we say, so here in this sweet surrounding of people who will embrace you and cheer you on, do it. Now, I'm not saying people aren't saved there. By God's grace, we're saved in all kinds of places, even through preachers who've just messed up the whole text, and yet the Holy Spirit isn't willing to leave it to the preacher. But what is Paul talking about? He's not talking about a friendly setting. Every year, Rome didn't care what people believed, what they worshipped, what they did, as long as one time a year they went up to the temple that every community had that was built for Caesar and went in and took a pinch of incense and put it on the altar and said, Caesar is Lord. If you would say Caesar is Lord, then you could go out and worship Jesus or anyone you wanted. If you would not say Caesar is Lord, depending on who was in Rome at that point, you might just lose your job or your ability to to, uh, live freely. You might lose your life. There's a famous letter that's written back to Rome uh, by one of the governors, I think it was Pliny, who wrote back, asking saying ask caesar what we should do with these followers of christ because we can't get them to say caesar is lord i've killed a few but it didn't make any difference they still won't say it they will only say christus christ is lord that's what paul's talking about when john says you believe it he's talking to people who had to put their lives on the line for this. They weren't getting cheered on for it. They were facing suffering and death. So what does it mean for those of us who live freely? I I think in a biblical context, we really can't know whether we believe in Jesus unless at the points in our life where what we know he's calling us to do conflicts with what we think we want to do. And we follow him instead of doing what we want. That's what shows it. It shows it where it might cost me something, cost you something. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe it when you make a decision about what you're going to look at on your computer or what you're going to purchase or where you're going to go tonight? Does it inform your life, the way you spend money, the way you manage your time, the way you love your husband or your wife, your children? the way that you care for your friends. That's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's a new way of thinking. And so it leads automatically to the second, a matter of the heart. It's a whole new way of loving. He says, if you've been born anew and really believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're going to love the children of God. This is a sign that you love God. You're going to love His children wow, that means I've got to love the people in church? Well, thank God He didn't say, this is how we know that we are born again, that you like the children of God. (laughs) Doesn't, Doesn't say that. You know, we're saved that. though there should be a growing affection as we come to know one another and love one another as Christ has loved us. But to love someone means that you always wish the very best for them, you want for them God's best. You're not hoping that, you know, something… A friend of mine called me when I was driving here a couple days ago, driving up from Knoxville, and he said, well, you know, you know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You know, uh, what, what do you think particularly uh, the evangelical church needs right now? I'm kind of listing all these things that I'm thinking. And he said, oh, I love it, John. It's typical of you. You're getting up a full head of steam. And I said, I always get up a full head of steam before I run into a wall. (laughs) It's my way. But brothers and sisters, we give each other enormous grace if we've been born again. And back when I was years ago, when I was in the PCA, knew this church, you were known for that. Let's be known for it again. Amen. Let's be known for it again. Let's love each other the way Christ has loved us. Let's forgive each other from the heart. Let's, if we need to go and ask people for forgiveness, do it. Get a load off. <laughs> Nothing more miserable than walking around with, I should really. now just go do it if you want to be reconciled to somebody. This isn't, it's not a process. You just go sit down and say, could we pray together, and then could I unburden my heart, and you un-? Do it and be done with it. Because when we confess our sins to the Lord in truth, he has told us that he puts it as far away as the east is from the west and he remembers it no more. And we should do the same. Just be done with it. John Stott used to say, if you've confessed your sin and you still feel guilty, either your view of your sin is too great or your view of Christ's forgiveness is too small. So, let's, let's love each other from the heart. This, this is a mark, and I can testify to it. Um, two, two examples. How are we doing on time? Okay. I want to be very attentive. In my little survey I sent out, uh, a whole number of you said we absolutely love the service, we love the music, we love everything. We would like it to be a little shorter, please. So I, I'm trying to listen to you. Um, do any of you know the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Are you familiar with him? He was uh, perhaps the greatest preacher in the English language in certainly the middle of the 20th century, and his books are still constantly sold and read. He was a Welshman, a physician again, doctor stories today. He was on the staff of Lord Hordern, who was physician to the King of England. And so he was on the fast track, but he increasingly felt God draw in his heart to care not just for people's bodies, but for their souls, and then increasing passion to preach the gospel. And as he was struggling with this, he went with his little fast set of friends to, uh, to one of the theaters in London, in Leicester Square. And <clears throat> heard that tremendous piece by Wagner where uh, the, the choir is, if I could do it, I'd do it for you, but it's this great piece that you would all recognize because it's often used as a theme but where the the choir is calling the pilgrim and the world is tugging and the choir is calling. And he felt that in his heart and he said he walked up out of the theater with these bright, delightful friends. And it was raining, as it always is in London. And he looked over and he said there was a little bedraggled Salvation Army band standing there playing. And his heart went to them. He said these are my people, these are my people." And it was settled for him. And something like that happened for me. I was born into a pastor's family, loving, wonderful. I was the third of four. I was surrounded by siblings who, like John the Baptist, were filled with the Holy Spirit from my mother's womb, and I was the one who wasn't. Um, And I believed it all, as I believed everything my parents taught me back then. And Professed faith and was filled with Bible knowledge and the rest, but as I became a teenager, I wanted what was out there. And I wasn't born anew. I began to run my heedless ways, kicked out of Wheaton College, a bad time to do it back in the 60s, ended up in the service. And suddenly, after years of tasting and seeing what the world had, and realizing that in the end, it always disappoints its pleasures for a moment but by morning it's turned to ashes in your hands I began to long again for the people of God I began to long to be back in the house of the Lord why not because of anything in me it was because God in his mercy and grace had said okay you've had your run now, I'm going to make you mine. It doesn't mean we always get along. It doesn't mean we always agree. But it means that as Christ gave himself for us, we are learning to love each other self-sacrificially from the heart. It's a mark. It's a vital sign. Believe in Christ, loving one another. Finally, matter of the will. It's a whole new way of living. What's What's that? Well, isn't it interesting that he says, this is how we know we love God. So I'm, okay, I'm ready. How do I know? Do I get emotional when certain things happen? Is it what goes on in worship? Well, all those things should be marked affectively by love for God. But he says, this is the supreme mark because all the rest can be counterfeited. Here it is. You keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Wow. In other words, your desire is to be obedient to God's teaching, God's Word. What are His commands? We said them at the beginning of the service. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, later, He said, my wife taught me. Well, I'll I'll save that for another time. I'm watching the clock. Um, If... We do not, if we see God's commandments as burdensome, and I mean the places where they hit us, I have no problem with your temptations and sins. I've got my own. And when it comes to those, apart from God's grace, I'm like Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything except temptation. (laughs) So the mark that God has got a hold of you is that you now are seeing the broken places in your life and saying, heal me, Lord. I don't want that anymore. I don't want it. The, the great Baptist preacher uh, in London, S- Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, used to use a lot of, of illustrations for the people in the city that were from the country. And one was, he said, he said, those of us who grew up in the country know the difference between a lamb and a pig. Uh, he said, a, a, a lamb hates the mud and stays as far away from it as it can. And if it gets muddy, it's miserable. It just wants to get clean. A pig, on the other hand, is looking for the mud, and he's never happier than when he's up to his nose. And he said, that's the difference between a regenerate and an unregenerate person, a person who's been born again and one who hasn't. If If you can enjoy sinning and then kind of clean up your act for Sunday, it's just a sign that you've not yet been born again because a regenerate person is miserable in sin. It's not that we become sinless, but it means that we're on a new trajectory. An obedient child is not a perfect child, nor is a disobedient child always disobedient. But there's a different trajectory in the laws. Which trajectory are you on this morning? One illustration and I promise I'm done. it's, it's uh, John Piper, I heard it years ago or I read it, I don't remember if I heard it from John or read it in one of his books. But uh, all of John's books are about this theme. John's central theme in, in everything he's written in his whole ministry is the idea that the great deception that we suffer is that we have to make a choice. Either we're gonna glorify God and so be miserable, or we're we going to satisfy ourselves and so not glorify God. He said that's Satan's greatest lie that he uses on us because the fact is the way that God has made us is that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And we, because He made us for Himself, are most deeply satisfied when God is most glorified in us. And he used, amen, thank you. He used a marvelous illustration uh, that <laughs> back when my dear wife was alive, I used to think of every anniversary. It made me very careful. He said, imagine, I hear an alarm going off. So, oh my goodness, it is 9.30. <laughs> Somebody's determined to keep me honest. Okay, really, short story, and I'll pray. Um, J- John said, imagine if on my anniversary, his, his wife's name was Noel, is Noel. Um, he said, imagine if on my anniversary, I walk in with a dozen red roses and give them to Noel, and she goes, oh, John, you shouldn't have. And I say, don't mention it, it was my duty. <laughs> in fact, I'd almost gotten home and I realized, oh, it's our anniversary, I don't have flowers. I had to turn around, go back into town, find a florist who actually, ha- I've been all over the city, finally got these for you. He said, what would my wife's response be? Would she say, you know, John, if you'd given them to me, because you wanted to, that would be sweet. But the fact that you didn't even want to and yet you went to all this effort, I am so honored. Uh, no, he said, Noel would tell me what I could do with those roses. You know, um, in other words, we dishonor God when we obey Him out of drudging sense of duty. All right, I'm going to keep God's law because I'm a Christian and I want this final vital sign. So. A mark is whether you're growing in your desire to keep God's law. Now, one caveat. Don't think, therefore, that if you can't really do it out of joy, it's not worth doing. Imagine uh, one of your children. You say, go up and, and, you know, clean up your room. And you go up later, and he's sitting there playing. And you say, why haven't you cleaned up your room if he said, you know, I was getting ready to do it. And then I realized I'd be doing it out of the wrong motive. I, I, I would be doing it out of fear of punishment, which is, you know, that's not right. I should, I should do it out of gratitude for all you've done for me, out of love for you, and really I'm not feeling it, so I'm just not going to do it. Would, I mean, would you say, what a brilliant little Tyro you are, a little theologian in the making. Have you considered seminary? No we'd say, you get up right now and clean this room or you're going to experience the posterior application of a superior force. Now, go We obey because we're his children, and we should obey because his ways are right and they lead to life and disobedience. He hasn't made rules just for rules' sake. He's showing us the way that we work and the things that work. But he wants us to grow in our love for him and our desire to do His will. So there are the three marks. It's a new way of thinking. Jesus is the Christ, and that, we're always growing in our understanding of that because with every study of Scripture, we're seeing more fully and richly and gloriously all that Jesus Christ is and shall be for us. It's a new way of loving. We're learning to love each other from the heart. We don't let anything stand between us. We won't, we won't tolerate that because we belong to each other, and it's a new way of living. We're learning to obey from the heart. Thank you so much for inviting me to come be with you. I'm looking forward to this next year. I hope I can get to know so many of you. I said earlier in the service, but I want to say it again, a number of you asked what I like to be called. I like to be called John. If, if my Lord is Jesus to me, not Mr. Jesus or Pastor Jesus, um, John's just fine. Just nothing before it. Thank you. Father, how we thank you for your mercy and your grace toward us, for such great love. You are the one who makes us new. We are born anew to a living hope, and we have an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for us, ready to be revealed at just the right time. We live in that hope. Now would you make this church again all that you desire it to be? Would you make us as individuals and as families all that you would have us be? To the honor and glory of your name. Amen.